Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. It, I do realize it is, uh, of course, Palm Sunday today, and next week I guarantee you we will jump into the New Testament to uh, hunker down on Easter Sunday passages in, uh, in good form, we will hope. Uh, but we want to continue on this week looking at Joshua as we've been in this series really the last couple of months. And, uh, and while it may seem a little bit of a departure from Palm Sunday, I think there's actually a connection that will be made, as you will hopefully see, that uh, whereas the Hebrew people, the people of God, the chosen ones of God, uh, celebrated the work of Jesus coming on Palm Sunday, but you recall later on in the week, were greatly disappointed that he didn't come on their terms and in their way. They didn't approach him with humility and surrender and submission. They wanted him to work the way they wanted him to work. Uh, so, too, we'll see in contrast today these Gibeonites in Joshua 9. These people that are, in fact, outside of the people of God and yet are able, yes, in a deceptive way, but able nonetheless to come and to seek God's favor to not demand that he meet them on their terms, but to come on whatever terms they possibly can to be able to enjoy his mercy and his favor. We uh, will remember about three weeks back in Joshua 6, we saw God's judging wrath poured out on Jericho. Two weeks ago, we saw his judging correction brought against Israel as they were defeated in this battle against I because they weren't maintaining their own spiritual integrity through disciplining themselves. And in the midst of that, we didn't just see judgment, but we saw faith and mercy and salvation. We saw Rahab come, who was among the people slotted for destruction and yet was able to come into a place of God's favor through faith. We even saw the people of God kind of righting themselves after they'd gotten off track with Achan and I and returning back into a place of God's favor. And today we'll see that theme continued in the Gibeonites. Yes, we'll, we'll see as well that Israel had some things to learn uh, because they don't consult God and they don't seek His will. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But even in greater degree... We're going to look at the Gibeonites and see how they managed, deceitfully, yes, but nevertheless, to get themselves out of the way of God's judgment and into the way of His favor. And what a beautiful thing that is. You can remain seated as I'll read uh, this chapter to us, but I do invite you to read along with me Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, 
worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, the Gibeonites were among them, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? Then said they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you and where did you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him. And all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet and to say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men, that's the men of Israel, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. The people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for, the, for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty, that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because, you, because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Let's pray together. 
Oh, Father, we ask that You would open our ears. Lord, allow us to hear and receive what You have for us today. Let us see in particular the amazing beauty of being able to be in Your favor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in November of 2009, the White House hosted a dinner for the visiting Prime Minister of India. As you can imagine, getting access to such an event, schmoozing with the dignitaries of a gathering hosted by the most powerful nation in the world for the leader of one of the most populous nations in the world would be quite advantageous to get access to. And you would think, of course, that the security for such an event would be incredibly maintained with a high degree of precision and care. How shocked the world was, and maybe you remember the story and the pictures of the couple, Tariq and Michelle Salahi from Virginia, who managed as imposters, pretending that they were supposed to be part of this gathering, to get into the White House, to get into this gathering of heads of state without any invitation or any permission whatsoever. It shocked the world, certainly, and was aired, those pictures of that couple arm in arm with some remarkable dignitaries at this gathering, certainly because it exposed some concerns, serious concerns about security issues, but drew our attention for other reasons besides that. Most of us were probably a little bit impressed that these folks, normal people from Virginia, could dress up, could play the part, and could manage to get into such a dignified gathering. Well, like the uh, concerns, the failure of the White House security, there's certainly in our passage today a message, and we're going to talk about it, of the Israelites and their failure to maintain their focus on the Lord, to seek His will, and to be careful about the commitments they make. But what's more amazing to me is the savvy of these Gibeonites to know that they're slated for destruction and yet to figure out a way, deceitful, yes, and so it's a little shock to our morality, deceitful, but a way to get into the pathway of God's favor and God's people. Main idea then that we might take from this, and you can find it if you want to in the back of your worship guide, there's a notes section, is that because it is great to be in the way of God's favor, we should do whatever we can to get there. And I might add, it's not jotted down there in your worship guide, rejoice to be there. 
do whatever we can to get there and rejoice to be there. Romans chapter 5, I think, is a good passage in case you think I'm a little bit in left field talking about the Gibeonites this way. If you want to turn, keep your one finger in Joshua 9 and turn to Romans. That'd be great. Romans is in the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Then you've got Romans. And Paul's been talking for a couple of chapters here about the uh, justly deserving judgment of God that we all face because of our sin and not seeking God. And then he turns in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'll just read a couple verses here. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that means declared righteous, simply by putting trust in Jesus, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Access Peace. The Gibeonites found their way into access and peace among the people of God. Read on down with me in verse 6. Picture again these supposedly international travelers, the Gibeonites, arriving in their disparate condition. For while we were still weak, it says in verse 6, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. God shows us His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Gibeonites had to connive and maneuver their way into it. What an amazing thing that we have offered to us, presented for us, the Lord Jesus Christ inviting us to be able to come from being enemies, those outside of peace with God, to be able to be reconciled to Him, to be in the way of His favor. It's a challenging thing though, isn't it? The fact is that in our culture, the matters we've considered over the last few weeks in Joshua of God's kind of judgment, God's holiness, and so forth, those are sort of passe, antiquated. We don't want to talk about that. And because we don't, even as believers, think about God's character that way, it's hard for us to appreciate how awesome it was. The Gibeonites said, do with us whatever you will. As long as you don't destroy us, we'll be happy to just find our way into some favor with God's people. And since we don't really see that judgment, we don't throw ourselves with total abandon upon the mercy of Christ and recognize how desperate we are. Even if we're numbered among the people of God, we have maybe at some point come to a place of realizing we're desperate and we'll do anything to be able to get our relationship with God restored. It's so easy to forget what a privilege it is. And add on top of that, even again, if we have found ourselves through Jesus into the way of God's favor, we get a little 
tired, don't we, of feeling sometimes like we're just carriers of water, cutters of wood in the kingdom of God. And so this passage has a lot to say to us. Before we get to the place of looking at how the Gibeonites fake their way into God's favor, let's take a moment to look at the Israelites forgetting the value and importance of God's favor. Look with me back. We're back in Joshua now. Verse 14 and 15 of chapter 9. It says, The men took some of their provisions, but you heard it when I read it the first time, didn't you? They didn't seek counsel from God. They didn't pray. Joshua made peace with them and swore an oath to them. We've been doing our men's Bible study in James, the Thursday morning Bible study. And we read this verse last week. You don't need to turn there. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and we'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Israelites just forgot kind of rule number one. Pray to God. They forget to seek His wisdom and His counsel. And I don't think it's that we have to have some sort of magic spell. You've got to make sure you pray five times every day about every single area of your life. Otherwise, God's going to cause that thing to come crashing down. But for most of us, the reverse is true, isn't it? We'll go through weeks, myself included, on end, where I forget to pray for my kids and my family. Forget to pray about my work. Forget to pray about my church. Forget to pray about my country. I grew up in the uh, northern regions of our country, as many of y'all know, Chicago, Pennsylvania, and so forth. I've probably used this illustration before, but prayer for me is like the whole thing of learning how to drive in the snow. When you're in a vehicle that's sliding and slipping in the snow, your instinctual reaction when it starts to skid is to turn exactly the wrong way to get it to straighten up. That's the way you feel like you should turn the steering wheel. Everything in you tells you you need to turn it that particular direction. But in fact, to stop that snow skid, you've got to turn it the opposite way. You've got to turn it what feels like the wrong way to go. And the same thing's true for us. Our default mode, my default mode, is I'm going to charge through life. I'll go to this city. I'll go to that town. I'll handle this issue. We'll sort this family matter out. We'll do whatever my power and my strength, my wisdom, my insight. And the Israelites remind us here how damaging that is to not seek the counsel of the Lord. I don't think it's that we have to have some quiver in our liver telling us exactly what to do in every situation that we pray about. It may not be His desire. Sometimes He'll give us some strong experiential leading. The matter is that we're praying, that we're asking Him to work in those situations, and we trust that He'll guide us. They don't just forget prayer, though. They forget God's Word. I didn't know this passage was there or didn't remember it before looking at the sermon this week, but back in Deuteronomy 7, you don't need to turn there, but this is long before they've gotten to the promised land. God tells them a couple things. 
He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, and then lists out all the nations, and when God gives them over to you, verse 2, Deuteronomy 7, you shall make no covenant with them. Hey, they weren't innocent in this matter. They'd been told, been given God's word. And that's for us too today. Think about our lives. Think about the areas we stumble and make mistakes. Sometimes there are areas where we know what we're supposed to do or we knew it at one time, but we've forgotten. We've kind of forgotten that part of God's word. And that's, that's just what we're doing here each week. I hope we all recognize that. We're, we're not just here to learn something new each week. We're here to remind ourselves of the things that we're supposed to know. The Israelites forgot what they should have known. That's the power of spending time each day looking at God's Word, building that discipline, getting involved in a small group Bible study or life group or some setting where you're digging in deep or coming to Sunday school. That's why we do that, to help us walk closely with the Lord. They also forget the solemnity of their Word. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, they, they keep and uphold their Word. And it seems kind of strange that they even do that. I mean, where's the attorney to rush in and say, this whole thing's a charade. This was identity theft. This was a false, you know, made, this contract was made under false pretenses. Where's that guy? Well, we're in the Old Testament times here. The point is not under what circumstances the agreement was made with the Gibeonites or not even who the Gibeonites are. The point, as you saw here, the Israelites reminded us that the promise was made in the name of the Lord. Just like their battles are going to be won and give glory to the name of the Lord, so too their promises and their word is. And it's a reminder here for us, again, to have, as Jesus says, our yes be yes and our no be no. That as by default, as believers, when we say we're going to do something, it's supposed to be as if we made a solemn vow before the Lord. And they're rightly concerned about this matter. We won't turn there, but you can jot down if you want to and look at it later. Second Samuel chapter 21. King Saul decides, you know, years and years later, to kind of put the old Gibeonites on the outside, not treat them so kindly. And guess what comes dropping right down on the Israelites and on Saul's head? God's judgment because of breaking that promise. So we see, and we can learn a lot from the Israelites forgetting here. We also will pause for just a minute and notice one other response before we look at the Gibeonites faking, and that is there's some other folks that decide to fight. Back in verses 1 and 2 of Joshua 9, we see that these other kings gathered together and then verse 2, they gathered to fight against Joshua and Israel. Joshua and Israel. What a reminder this is of the futility of trying to go against God and against His people. Psalm 2 talks about it. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Saying, why would you think you could do this? Why would you think you could throw yourself up against that wall and be able to achieve anything? And yet that's convicting for us too, isn't it? Because my default mode in my heart 
is not surrender to God. It's fighting against God. It's rebellion against God. And there might be some areas of my life where it's a little easier to do that surrendering, but there's plenty where it's pretty tough to get in that place. It's not just the uh, atheist or the agnostic who says with a raised fist, God, get out of my life. We do that often as well, even as believers. It draws my attention, and then we'll conclude by looking at the Gibeonites here. draws my attention to one event from this Easter week, that fighting mentality. Remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus? The two of them, actually. The one guy is chiding Jesus and sort of rebuking him. For not saving them. What's the problem? You're supposed to be the Lord of the universe. Rescue us. Get us out of here. And he begins to, crit- begins to criticize Jesus. Remember that other thief, though? What did he do? Just like these Gibeonites. He said, remember me. Remember me, Jesus. Remember Jesus' response to him? To indicate that he entered into... Jesus' favor, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's take a look at these Gibeons, Gibeonites for just a moment. Verses 3 through 13, I don't even need to go all through them. You get the idea, right? They were faking that they were from some other place. Why did they go to these great lengths, though? That's what drew my attention in looking at this passage this week. It's kind of a bizarre thing, sort of an unusual passage. What's the point? The point is that we ought to do whatever we possibly can, as crazy as it might seem, if you can get out of the way of God's judgment and into the way of God's favor. Do it. Do whatever you can do. Certainly reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to... Turn there, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then he goes on in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Who made out good in this deal? Was it the folks in verses 1 and 2 that decided to go fight against the Israelites? The Gibeonites look the fool. They're playing the part of the fool, and yet they find their way into God's favor. One other passage that's kind of a unique one i will ask you to turn there luke chapter 16 again i'm sort of defending myself here in case you think i'm crazy drawn on these gibeonites as a example for us to sort of follow here luke 16 hands down i think one of the most obscure and confusing parables in all of scripture so I'm thinking, why not mix it together with one of the most obscure and confusing passages in the Old Testament? If we're going to go, let's go hard. Verse 16, or chapter 16 of Luke. Listen to this. 
and you're going to have to suspend all your morality, the accountants and the attorneys and the law enforcement people, just going to have to set that aside and try to get what Jesus' point is. It won't take us a second, really, to look at it. This is a parable. This is from the mouth of Jesus. He said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, and you can no longer be manager. He's fired. He's out of a job. He's done. And the manager said to himself, What does he do? What shall I do since my master's taking management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, so when he goes on to the next stage, that's the point here. He's going on to the next stage of existence. People may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. What's he doing? Seems like he's adding insult to injury. He's already been fired. He's already messed up big time. What's he doing now? He's digging an even deeper hole. Not at all. The master, the guy who had just been firing him, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. The point isn't the money here. The point is the means. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What's the point? The point again is this guy is commended for doing whatever he can to get himself in the way of favor in the next situation that he's going to. For us, it's from earthly life to eternal life. Do whatever we can to find our place there. What's that mean for us today? If you're here and you have yet to really receive Jesus into your life to surrender to Him as Savior, as Lord. I hope these passages just scream. Find a way to get into that favor. Read something. Meet with a pastor. Ask somebody to pray with you. Talk to somebody. Don't stop seeking to understand and to find your way into a place of salvation. For those that are here maybe and and feel like you have received that, but you've got serious questions and doubts that are just debilitating to really walking in God's favor. Get those things, seek to get those things sorted out. If we're here and we've trusted in Christ and we've come into that favor, oh, people of God, remember what an incredible thing it is to be there. The great lengths that the Gibeonites went to dodge God's wrath and come into His favor. What a privilege that Romans 5, as we read earlier, says that we can have peace with God offered to us. We don't have to connive or maneuver to get to that place. It's given to us freely. We should rejoice in that. And lastly, if we do feel a little bit discouraged, like we're in the kingdom, and yeah, we're supposed to be in God's favor, but I just feel like a cutter of wood. I feel like a drawer of water. Let's remember 
It's better to be a doorkeeper in the household of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is that we could be in your favor, numbered among your people, and we are absolutely in and of ourselves totally outsiders like these Gibeonites. No right to your love or your kindness. It's easy for us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but that is true, Lord. And so we thank you, Lord, that we've been able to, through the work of Christ, many of us here to come to a place, being able to enjoy walking each day, fellowship and relationship with you. Lord, encourage us where we might be discouraged in that walk. Because it is such a wonderful privilege. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.